You're listening to Giro Vagando, the cycling podcast at the 2022 Giro d'Italia, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are in Napoli. Voor de vijfde klap. Wie wint deze etappe? Wie wint deze etappe? Het is Van Hoeken die aan de leiding gaat. Gaburo, tweede positie. De Gent, derde stelling. Het is voor de Ritwins. Arcas de Spanjaard. En de Gent gaat. De Gent met de versnelling. De Gent met de gooi naar een Ritwins in de Giro d'Italia. En daar zit nog wat op. En Thomas de Gent, de winnaar van de Stelvio, wint hier zijn tweede Giro. Het is niet te geloven. De man van de Stelvio is de beste in Napels. Hij is de keizer. Well, here he is, the hero of the day. Not Thomas de Gent, but l'enfant du pays. Chiros Cognamilio of La Gazzetta dello Sport, Napoli's favorite son. Uh, dear listeners, uh, De Gent, uh, Thomas, dear Thomas, uh, I have two words for you. Ten years ago, you won at the top of the, stel- of, of the Stelvio. Today, another history. Nothing possible to compare. Dear listener, you can even imagine the difference between the Stelvio and the beaches of Naples? Uh, once more, a Belgian, a Belgian guy has won in Naples, and you know that uh, the king of Naples in this period is another Belgian guy. Dries Mertens is the guy that scored the most number of goals in the history of Naples. I asked to Thomas de Gent if uh, he knows Mertens, and uh, he answered me, yes, I know who is Dries Mertens, but I don't like football. Poor Thomas, you even don't know what are you losing. Well, Lionel, I think it's pretty obvious from the intro this evening where we are. But what we heard there was Renat Schotter, our good friend and colleague from Sportza, 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 commentating live on the finish and commentating live on the victory by his compatriot, Thomas de Gent. We also heard Chiros Cognamilio dropping in the first football reference of the episode before it even started in the pre-match warm-up. Yellow card for Chiro. <laughs> yeah, we're in Napoli, or as English speakers will probably be more familiar, Naples. Everyone knows Naples in Napoli. And I've got to say, it's everything I expected it to be. You can probably hear the traffic, the scooters whizzing past. The Well, this is a two-lane road divided into about six the way the Neapolitans drive. It's everything I expected in one way, but surprises me in another because I hadn't appreciated just how much of a hilltop city this is. This, we're on the flat here, not far from the sea, uh, but it rises up, all the apartment blocks on the horizon there behind us. I mean, it's a real kind of a working city, this, isn't it? Huge, uh, bustling, busy. Reminds you a bit of Marseille? It does actually, and there was a smart little marina that we came mm. past on the way down to from the like start the old of the port finish. in Marseille. Not not dissimilar, was it? And the hill as well, overlooking. I mean, Marseille is also quite a dramatic city as one heads inland. And well, that that comparison is often made. Naples and Marseille, similar in good ways and bad ways. Strong, a very strong and proud music tradition, sports tradition. There'll be a lot of music tonight, aptly, because it's the Eurovision Song Contest tonight, which everyone's getting very excited about here in Italy because it's taking place in Turin, a few hundred kilometers north of here. Wow, wow, what an event. Well, let's rattle through the tale of the tapper. You've got nothing to say about the Eurovision Song Contest, nothing have you? Nothing whatsoever, no, nothing whatsoever. I mean, not very not good music. 
Um, not Some a novelty act. I mean, I, it's a very famous musical city. It's going, as I said, it's going to be a very musical episode. But lots of famous artists from Napoli: uh, Pino Daniele, Gigi D'Alessio. Yeah, I mean, amazing. You place more emphasis and importance on the Eurovision Song Contest than on cyclocross or track cycling. I mean, extraordinary, extraordinary. Anyway, today's stage was a punchy one, wasn't it? 153 kilometers from Napoli to Napoli and it was shaped by a 21 rider break. Significantly, Lotto Sudal had three riders in it initially. Thomas de Gent, the eventual stage winner, Harm van Hooker, his teammate, and Sylvain Monique, who was fourth on Mount Etna at the start of the week. There were several teams with two riders in there. AG2R had Vandrame and Kalamajan. Astana had Feline and Tejada. Bahrain had Wout Pauls and Sutelin. There were a couple of drones in there, Ravanelli and Zardini, and a couple of Viola riders, Maestri and Rivi. The solo acts were Matthew van der Poel, Davide Gaburo of Bardiani, Guillaume Martin, Biniam Germay, Jorge Arcas of Movistar, Maro Schmidt of Quickstep, Skelmosa of Trek and Ulisi of UAE. Now, I say significant because, as it was, those solo acts were, most of them, were the real uh, agitators in the final part of the stage. The break got around three minutes. It was pretty steady. The peloton was pegging it at three minutes. Trek were doing their thing on the front to defend the pink jersey. Thank you very much. Here's my Crodino. Lovely. Very nice. Very nice. And it all kicked off, really, with 46 kilometres to go when Matthew van der Poel did his Matthew van der Poel-style attack. Very aggressive, out of the saddle, on the climb. Germay was one of the ones to react. Schmidt and Poles also reacted. But then suddenly, without really even recognising how it happened, they had the initiative and then lost it. Because as soon as that move fizzled out, a group went away with Van Hooker and De Gent of Lotto Sudal, Arcas of Movistar, Ravanelli and Gaburo. And those five got clear, not by very much, 30, 40 seconds, but they got clear and they stayed clear. Lotto Sudal really played a blinder. Ravanelli was dropped with around 32 kilometres to go. And then there was another burst of activity on the climb between sort of 28 and 26 kilometres to go when Schmidt, Van der Poel, Gamay, Schmidt again, all launched attacks but none of this made any inroads on the leading quartet and although the gap came right down to sort of 15 seconds 10 seconds I think at one point uh, they stayed clear to contest the finish and Lotto Sudal well I don't know whether De Hent was particularly concerned about the opposition because neither Arcas nor Gaburo have ever won a pro race before and in fact his teammate Van Hooker said at the finish that De Gent had said with a few kilometres ago, I'm the quickest here. So that sorted out Lotto Sudal's tactic. We wondered how much he knew about Davide Gaburro's finishing speed and how much he ascertained or well, guessed at just based on watching him ride today because Gaburro has not been racing at the top level for that long. He also, I learned today, he'd, he'd well, spent a couple of years working in a factory before he turned professional. It's a real sort of rags to riches story. Wow. Well, he was seventh in the Eschborn Frankfurt race, which is a, a sprinter's classic, isn't it? A few years ago. But nothing really to suggest that he would have an answer to, to De Gent's finish, which was a very powerful acceleration. Uh, a convincing stage win for Lotto Sudal, who not managed to get one thanks to Caleb Ewan so far in this Giro. That was De Gent's second stage win in the Giro because his last one was 10 years ago on the Stelvio. 
uh, when he almost caused, caused a stunning late upset and won the Giro itself, didn't he? With that incredible attack while he was riding for Vacansolet. Just to mention Kilometer Zero, the two-parter about that 2012 Giro. Uh, Degen is one of the sort of background figures in that. Part two will be out on Monday. But his latest Grand Tour stage win was at the Tour de France in Saint-Étienne in 2019. And, uh, well, Daniel, you said as we walked back from the finish, you thought his Grand Tour stage winning days were behind him, but clearly not. I thought he was, as the Italians say, a la fruta, like on the fruit course. He'd finished his dessert and there was not much left of the meal. Just a, a coffee and a grappa and a stumble to bed left exactly. to go for De Ken. <laughs> Gamay led in the uh, next group. I mean, Gamay, Schmidt and Van der Poel really mugged themselves, didn't they, a little bit. Guillaume Martin, he's doing what Guillaume Martin often does. He's gained a load of places on GC. Like he's moved avant-garde at a Puma. It's incredible. He's moved up 24 places to fourth, now 106 behind uh, Juan Pedro Lopez, who will have his fifth day in pink tomorrow. The question is, will it be his last at Blockhouse? Lena Kemner is still second at 38 seconds. Ryan Tarame is third at 58. So Martin, the big question is, will he just slip back to where he came from on Blockhouse tomorrow? We'll wait and see. One non-starter today, Simon Carr of EF Education Easy Post. After hearing about Owain Duel yesterday, wonder whether that's sickness related, don't know at the moment. Uh, no change to the other jerseys, and as I say, it's the big one to Blockhouse tomorrow, a real big mountain stage, and there will be some sort of sort out in the GC. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data actionable insights and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Super Sapiens are the title sponsors of all of the Cycling Podcast shows and we're very grateful to them. And well, I perhaps today found out a little bit too much about my blood glucose levels because I was in the recovery zone all day. Even lunch didn't send me soaring and give me a burst of energy this afternoon. Not sure what that's all about. And I did uh, almost nod off in the press room this afternoon. I had my new sunglasses on and uh, rested my eyes third for a second. Um, of the Giro. I'm struggling to get into yeah, third pair of the Giro. I'm struggling to get into the performance zone, which the listeners might say, well, yes, we can tell. Super Sapiens will help you to manage your energy resources for your racing and training. Go to supersapiens.com. And as I've said repeatedly, we will find out exactly what all of the data I've been gathering over the last 10 days or so at the Giro actually means for my cycling when I get home. Lionel, that was us being serenaded to the start village, which was in the Piazza del Plebiscito earlier, one of the great squares, or the great square in Naples, really. But it, it felt like a, well, Napoli, as I said, is a musical city, and it's quite a loud city as well. You can possibly hear the traffic next to us. And there were times watching the race today when I felt that the, the pace, the rhythm, the excitement of the race was 
was mimicking some of the images I have of Naples. I was thinking back to the Maradona. I mean, is that the first match to Maradona this evening? The Maradona documentary uh, that came out a couple of years ago featured our good friend John Foote and the opening scenes of him being driven to the San Paolo Stadium and being presented to the media sort of in the bowels of the stadium and the sort of thudding, pulsating, thumping music which creates a very sort of intense atmosphere and that was the kind of race it was it was short it was it was exciting it was dramatic yeah it was a very aggressive race daniel and as i was anticipating all week just from looking at the profile of the course with the repeated climbs of the monte di procida the race had a kind of a mini world championship feel it had the the group that went clear and it had the different phases of the race and van der poel gamay and Schmidt, who were the, the chief kind of agitators as they went up the climb, must have thought that they were doing exactly the right thing by trying to sh split that group down, uh, maybe reduce the, the number of riders sort of hanging on and sitting on. But as I say, they got themselves into the right sort of position and then succumbed to the sucker punch from Lotto Sudal, who I have to say played it absolutely perfectly. They didn't go panicking and chasing the wheels initially, but then as it all came back together, they made their move and they made it stick. Yes, Lionel, and as soon as we saw Mathieu van der Poel go away early in the race, well, we were excited. And I think instinctively, most people thought, well, you know, if he was the favorite for the stage before, we started today, then he's definitely the favourite now. But in fact, with Mathieu van der Poel, he often finds himself in this in this sort of catch-22. He's almost, he finds himself holding a big kind of cartoon bomb with a, with a fuse that's burning down because, well, that bomb is his reputation and his ability as a sprinter. And it's the same with Gamay. And often those riders find it very, very difficult in that kind of group to win because no one will work with them. And... Van der Poel, I guess, although he was criticised again today for not racing very smartly, I think he probably did the right thing by taking the initiative because he, he ultimately didn't want to find himself in the situation that he did find himself in, in the end, being attacked on all sides. And he wanted to dictate. He just wasn't quite strong enough to, well, to ride everyone off his wheel, as we've seen him do many times before. And also maybe the climb wasn't quite long enough and then there was a descent and then it all there was plenty of opportunity for it to all concertina back together again, wasn't there? Unless there was kind of full commitment. Did he need a teammate? Well, that's a very good question. He probably did because Lotto Sudal had the two riders and probably would have been slightly concerned about the strength of the, the company uh, with them in terms of uh, having the horsepower to, to stay away. But in tactical terms... Arcas and Gaburo, they weren't necessarily riders that Van der Poel or Gamay or the others chasing would have been terribly worried about. They might have thought, well, in real terms, we've got a real good chance of getting this back. But actually, with the full commitment from Lotto Sudal up at the front, it meant that they could keep that gap even when it was coming down. There wasn't the cohesion behind for it to all come back together again. When you said that the Italian TV commentators had been criticising Van der Poel, I, I always think that's pretty harsh. If you're aggressive in a race, it should be kind of above the criticism. I mean, making mistakes is part of professional cycling. I mean, every potential race-winning move is equally a potential mistake. We should say as well that he was pretty aggrieved himself. We don't know what with. We don't know whether he was frustrated with his own performance. He thought he'd made mistakes or maybe about the lack of a teammate or maybe about... Well, some bad fortune today or just bad timing. I mean, he came very close, didn't he? He and Gamay came very close to the, the 
De Gent group. I'm going to just carry on calling him De Gent because it feels more natural. Thomas De Gent, though, what a career. Five, to, was today his fifth, no, sixth Grand Tour stage win. That's his second Grand Tour or second victory, stage victory at the Giro d'Italia. And as I said earlier, I felt last year, and I think a lot of people felt he was almost reading the last rights on his career. He gave several interviews. There was one in particular in the Tour de France. He talked about riding one of his best ever 10-minute efforts at the start of stage eight, I think it was. And well, he, he said he'd been recording those efforts since 2013, and he was getting dropped. He stressed that he wasn't insinuating doping or anything like that. Um, he just thought that cycling was sort of passing him by and that he was being evolved out of professional cycling. He sounded very pessimistic, I thought, at the Tour de France last year, as though his days of winning Grand Tour stages were probably over. I did also say to you this afternoon, Lionel, as we walk back from the finish, um, he has won most of his races as, as a professional alone. And as a result of that, people overlook how fast he is and how clinical he can be. I mean, I remember seeing him win a stage in the Vuelta in 2017, um, in which he he won from quite a small group and surprised me on that occasion. And he really did underline again today that he has been one of the standout riders of his generation, maybe without the sort of singular finishing speed or climbing ability that would mark him out as a, or that would allow him to win the biggest races in the world. But as an all-round athlete, um, I think he's right up there. I was wondering as they were riding towards the finish, they must have been well, thanking their lucky stars and, and wondering quite how they'd managed to get into this group without any of um, the, the, you know, the real big threats to them. Uh, Van der Poel, Gamay, Schmidt, all very aggressive, but all very aggressive at, you know, at the wrong time and then too late. As the lead group were coming round, into, well, as they were in the finish straight, Van Hook said he looked back and saw that Van der Poel and Gamay were you know, in sight coming round the last corner. Uh, but I think they knew before then that they, they had it. And so De Gent opened up his sprint very early and very powerfully. I mean, there was no doubt. I mean, that was the volley into the roof of the net, wasn't it? And just looking at that stage win in 2017, Vuelta, I mean, he beat Ivan Cortina, who was almost a sprinter. Um, that was a, it was a nine-man group, in fact. But Lionel, should we hear from one of the beaten men today? Mara, when Mathieu attacked with about 50k to go, did you kind of think, oh no, that it's going to be impossible now to sort of control this race and he's just going to rip it apart? No, I wasn't really afraid because for sure it was a hard attack and I was in the front, so I had to immediately uh, react, but I was quite quickly back on his wheel. Then the problem was really that, uh, that we two uh, showed on the climb that we are probably the strongest of the group. And uh, yeah, then everybody looked at us on the flat and then the guys uh, started attacking and you cannot follow every attack. The gap opened up and uh, yeah, of course at the beginning was a bit, uh, there were a few guys in, in the chasing group that didn't want to pull and then it makes it uh, super difficult. You, you take back 10 seconds on the climb and then uh, you look at each other, you lose back again these 10 seconds and it's really hard when you always see like you see them but it's still a little bit too far to bridge across and uh, yeah that makes it quite uh, quite hard last year you won a breakaway here at the giro thomas de Gent now has been winning breakaways in grand tours for years how much of a role model is he to guys like you 
think everybody knows when he's in the break, it's always super hard. Yeah, in the end, uh, we knew Lotto had three guys in front. It's always hard to control something like that because when you're like 20 guys and you're alone from your team, you need to do all the, the chasing and closing gaps. And they had a bit the privilege that if somebody attacks, yeah, they can they can play their roles, they can close the gaps. And in the end, we uh, I, I realized, I think, the only option uh, is to attack early. So like Mathieu did, I think it was not not a bad idea, but yeah, in the end, it also opened up the race. And when you went go into the into the red, and the other guys start attacking, uh, yeah, you need to be on the wheel. Good ride anyway. What well a Mara. Daniel, the GC riders will be relieved to have got today out of the way. They can now focus entirely on Blockhouse tomorrow. But that's not to say there wasn't some significant moves on GC or one significant move because Guillaume Martin pulled off the Guillaume Martin. Well, I said two days ago, didn't I, that I thought he would be in the pink jersey in Potenza because I thought he might get well, enough freedom having lost about four minutes or having been about four minutes down on general classification to go in a break and find himself back in contention in the GC. It didn't happen yesterday, but it did happen today. Lionel, should we hear from Guillaume Martin and hear what he had to say at the finish here in Naples? Happy to, tonight. It wasn't uh, planned at all. I just wanted to, to, um, to have a safe day and, uh, and eventually I, uh, I gain uh, a few minutes. That's, that's a good uh, operation and I hope I, uh, I will recover well in order to be uh, as good as possible tomorrow. Well, Lionel, these riders have to stop getting into breaks by accident. It's, uh, it's, it's <laughs> catching, isn't it? I mean, it, I mean listeners, it makes a mockery. It makes a mockery of this, uh, this phrase we hear about how hard it is to get in the break. I mean, Gil Martin seems to do it, yeah, as you say, I mean, unintentionally. You, you can you, you sneeze and you're in a break <laughs> at this Giro d'Italia. I mean, listeners, next time when you go out to get your newspaper tomorrow morning, be careful you don't find yourself in a winning break in the Giro d'Italia. <laughs> it can happen to anyone. Um, but he is now, Lionel, one minute and six down from Juanpe Lopez. Leonard Kemner, as you said in the tail of the tapper, he also had a go, tried to get a bit closer to um, Juanpe Lopez today. It's nicely poised, isn't it? Will Guillaume Martin be in the pink jersey tomorrow? I think it will be a good battle between him and Juanpe Lopez. Well, possibly, but I mean, there are other people to consider, aren't there? I mean, Kemner's still a, a live threat. Simon Yates, of course, is. Well, do we still consider Simon Yates the leader in the clubhouse at the moment, or does Guillaume Martin take that? Is, is Martin going to be pretty happy with where he is tonight? I'm sure he will be. But he's playing sort of snakes and ladders cycling, isn't he? You know, he's done this in the Tour before, he's done this in the Vuelta before. I mean, my suspicion is that tomorrow he'll lose about 11 minutes and he'll be right back down, a bit like landing on the, the big snake after climbing up the, uh, yeah. the helpful I mean, ladder. He does tend to go up by the stairs and down in the elevator, doesn't he? <laughs> shoot, uh, shoot à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by LinkedIn Jobs. And we've used LinkedIn Jobs before to find people, talented people, who can work with us on the cycling podcast. And we will do so again, because as small business owners, Daniel, we're often juggling hundreds of balls at the same time, and we don't have time to go through a, a lengthy recruitment process. We want to identify the talent that could work with us 
the people who are willing to work with us, I guess, as well, as easily as possible. And LinkedIn Jobs helps you do that because you can create a free job post on LinkedIn Jobs in just a few minutes and you're tapping into a world of suitable professionals. There's over 30 million people in the UK on LinkedIn. You add your job title and you add the hiring hashtag to it and the people will come to you. You can also use the screening questions to make it easy to focus on the right type of candidate. So if LinkedIn jobs sounds like something that might help your business, go to linkedin.com slash cycle and you can post a job ad for free. That's linkedin.com slash cycle. Terms and conditions apply. I am a Napolitan writer or a writer of Naples, uh, Gianpaolo Borrega, and I think that uh, cyclism is a nice way to know Naples. Credo, credo che il significato del giro del 1968 resti qualcosa che va al di là. Well, Lionel, that was an acquaintance that I made today, Gianpaolo Porreca, who is a cycling journalist, as you heard there, from Naples, has written a book, Il Giro Racconta. It's the story of 115 stage finishes in Campania, which is the region we're in today in Naples. Some cracking stories, some cracking yarns in there, some of which I knew, Lionel, some I didn't. Um, the first ever Giro d'Italia, third stage finished on what is now the runway of the Naples International Airport was won by Rossignoli who won that first Giro d'Italia 1963 the Giro started in Naples with two Italian national champions would you believe it and this caused a lot of fuss this caused a lot of consternation there was a sort of a split between the Italian Federation and the Italian League of Cyclists and the race jury stormed out and threatened to stop the Giro threatened to grind to a halt eventually they resolved it 1968 a very sad chapter when Merckx won in Terracina the previous day and caused so much excitement that the grandstand collapsed and unfortunately killed a young fan and then the Giro arrived here in very sombre mood 1968 Merckx winning his first Giro here in Naples then 1969 a very sad chapter when Merckx won in Terracina and causing so much excitement that a grandstand collapsed and tragically killed a young fan and then the Giro arrived in very sombre mood here in Naples the following day. You also heard there a very famous song in Naples, O Visto Maradona, which is sung at the San Paolo Stadium, as we mentioned earlier. And I learned that that was invented today, almost invented by Maradona himself, because he met the, a songwriter on a plane in 1986. And this was already a famous song, famous melody with different words. And they got chatting and Maradona asked whether he could adapt the lyrics. Um, and turn it into an ode to himself, as one does. But it's a very, very famous song here. And we've seen lots of Maradon iconography today, haven't we, Lionel? Well, equally famous is the Neapolitan pizza. And I went in search of that at lunchtime, Daniel. I was flabbergasted to see that, as well as the marinara and the mozzarella, there was also a Chiro pizza. On the Chiro pizza, yellow cherry tomato sauce, courgette flowers, salami basil pesto 
Ajarola cheese, is that a, a local type of cheese? Yeah. I don't know. And olive oil. I took Chiro's advice. I didn't have the Chiro pizza. I had the mozzarella. It was an absolute classic. The base is incredible. Just that perfect, crusty, but chewy consistency. The, the, the crust itself had really puffed up but very edible. Sometimes when the crust is very doughy, I tend to leave them. But the Neapolitan pizza crusts are completely and delightfully edible. The tomato on the top was just bursting with freshness and flavour. And the mozzarella, unlike some kind of artisan pizza places back in the UK, the mozzarella is actually quite firm and dry. And and it doesn't kind of slosh about and go oily and break down and, and greasy. So the whole pizza itself once cut up does hold together very well absolutely you know the real deal i think it was There was a lot of pizza chat line on italian television today i think juanpe lopez the pink jersey the malia rosa was photographed with a pizza at the start today and this led to a very lively discussion on italian tv between the commentators co-commentators about whether it was possible to eat a pizza just before the start of a giro stage and to survive or and to to prosper in said race, in said stage, Alessandro Petacchi said that he was capable of eating two pizzas under normal circumstances, but not before the start of a stage. I don't think Juan P. Lopez wolfed the whole thing, do you? Um, Lionel, I, we had separate pizzas. I went off a little bit later and I had a Margherita del Vesuvio, uh, Vesuvius Margherita. This was very apt today, wasn't it? Because, well, not only is Naples overlooked by Vesuvius, but we made a little trip earlier, which was very much linked to Vesuvius. The water fountains were made by four blocks of lava, like this one, one, two, three, four, or by four blocks of white marble, like the next century. Now, the four blocks used to be tied together by iron, solid, in response by lead. When the fountain was full, also animals were able to... Where have you brought me now, Daniel? Well, on last night, we stayed in a little bed and breakfast near Eboli, and you had a sauna in your room. I must stress, this is not the kind of establishment, or you don't, that's not on your rider, is it, for the Giro, to have a sauna in your room every night, and you seem to enjoy it. So I thought I'd take you to, well, for full spa treatment this morning. I didn't go in the sauna, actually, Daniel. There wasn't time, but we're at the central baths in the centre of Pompeii. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, it's not exactly fitness first, though, is it? Um, these baths, I mean, not only do they date from, well, I think the, the construction started around about... It was AD 62, and it wasn't quite finished when the eruption buried the city. But, Lionel, this was supposed to be the fitness first, the gym, the big gym, the big sort of showpiece gym of the city of Pompeii. And, well, we've been visiting that city for what remains of that city for the last half an hour or so, and what a treat it has been. What did you expect, Lionel, and how has this lived up to or defied, exceeded your expectations? I didn't expect it to be as big. I didn't expect it to be as well kind of preserved. I mean, basically, the sort of first story brick and stonework is largely intact. I also didn't expect it to be so well organised. I mean, you come down the main streets and it's organised on a grid system. It's like a mini New York, really. There's the residential dwellings are all next to one another, all very similar. There's, it's not, well, this must be just where the ordinary residents of Pompeii lived it really feels like an ancient city you can as you said when we were walking down you can imagine the noise and the bustle and the smell an extraordinary uh, feat to kind of excavate it and preserve it as well as they have done and Lionel I remember a few years ago on the Jira we had a, a sort of fairly glib conversation about Fausto Coppi we were on 
um, or in the area where Fausto Coppi had grown up. And I said, it was a semi-serious point, that it was somehow difficult to imagine Fausto Coppi training on those roads in sort of full Technicolor, experiencing them in very much the same way as we were experiencing them that day. But here, somehow, I find it easier to imagine Romans milling around here in their togas. What's more difficult to imagine is that on one day, or over two days in 79 AD, over a thousand of them were incinerated by a volcano, which we can barely see today. I mean, it's a clear day. There is a bit of haze, but Vesuvius is on the other side of Naples. And to think that this was, well, this was where there was most damage. It wasn't the only city that was completely obliterated. But that is almost difficult to conceive of isn't it yeah i can't imagine it they couldn't have seen it coming they couldn't have known or or if they did they didn't react quickly enough they didn't react quickly enough i mean they didn't have the director sportif in the race radio saying evacuate i'm not being glib but i mean what would you do i mean you'd i can't imagine it a hundred thousand times the thermal energy released by the hiroshima nagasaki bombings wow wow yeah it's extraordinary isn't it and that was that was it. I mean, the population was apparently between fifteen and twenty thousand of, of uh, this city and uh, another one nearby. Very uh, swanky, well-appointed town it was. Between a thousand and two thousand people died in uh, the eruption. Um, so most people did get away, actually. But um, yeah, it must have been absolutely staggering just to see basically your civilization buried under ash and lava. And again. We have been making glib points amongst ourselves about well, the sort of bike races that could have been organised here. The, the cobbles, I mean, we always go on every year about how the Paris-Roubaix cobbles are uh, gnarlier than the Tour of Flanders cobbles. The cobbles in Pompeii are quite something, aren't they? I mean, and, and the, there are some lovely gravel sections, actually. I mean, in all seriousness, you probably could organise a, a bit of a... It would be quite technical, wouldn't it? A gravel circuit around here, but... Um, I wouldn't put it past the, you know, the hipsters of 2022. No, I wouldn't either. I mean, Van der Poel, Van Aert, Peter Sagan in his pomp would cope very well with the, uh, the challenge that the Giro de Pompeii would, uh, would throw up. But um, I, no, I mean, this is one of the great treats of the Giro Vagando, the chance to come and see this. Absolutely remarkable. And well, we were played in there, we heard the voices of the, obviously there are, dozens and probably hundreds of tourist guides taking people around Pompeii in every conceivable language but you can also hear now well near silence you can probably hear the birds cheeping behind us and um, this place is so big that there are recesses of it you can retreat to and and just pause for a moment and try to picture in your mind's eye what it was actually like in um, 79 AD so strongly strongly recommended if ever you're near Naples or Pompeii. One of the residents of Pompeii over there on that rock, a little lizard, look. Which rider would be the lizard of Pompeii? Oh, my God. We are on one of the main avenues. Look at this crossroad. East, west, north, south roads. Blocks. Mark, this morning we've been in Pompeii. Um, I know you're, well, you're quite passionate about ancient Greece, ancient Rome. Where does this come from? I don't know, it's just nice, isn't it? It's just interesting. You know who else is? So I'm rooming with James Knox here. He's mad into it. Like, he's got these little tidbits about, about everything, you know? It's pretty special. I don't know, it's just cool, isn't it? You know, when you hear when you hear history of, of places and things, like, you realise how insignificant, kind of, we are. We're in a nice little bubble of cycling. It's like a whole world, everyone, isn't it, that's here. And uh, like, we're pretty insignificant, to be fair, aren't we? 
a wealthy houses were all on the ground floor. Numbers of music are all on you. Eh? They, they have the different type of number, but they had no, in any way, no uh, house you were in Roman time. And not even street signs, so those are all new. You see them? Okay. Uh, all made in uh, Jacobo, you told us on Twitter that we were in the best place in the world this morning, Pompeii. Why did you say that? I've been there for the first time in my life a few months ago during the winter holiday we had. And I was shocked because even I'm Italian, you know, but uh, even on the media, they always show like the inside of the houses. But for me, it was most impressive. It was like, you just arrive and it's a huge village, you know, in front of you. And I was shocked because it was something amazing. Probably you notice know also like there were the traces of the, of the I don't know how do, do you say you know people yeah on the on the road you know from the people with the with the wheels on the I was stunning I was like wow it's like you feel like I mean I visited Rome a few times and I was always like super happy super pleasant place but then Pompeii was yeah another level I think did you take your daughter no I was without her probably because. Yeah, no, I was uh, with my girlfriend and uh, I think with her she would have complained like, oh, I'm tired, you know, like she liked to bicycle but not to walk. Also, if you tell, uh, how old is your daughter? How old? Uh, she's five. If you tell a five-year-old that thousands of people got wiped out by a volcano, they might walk around in the world a little bit anxious. <laughs> yeah, 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 but yeah, I know it's that age, maybe she don't really get what, what she's seeing. Also, I, I come from a, a really old town. So she might think it's the same thing I see every day, you know? No volcanoes in Piacenza? No, not at all. I think that's the Arc de Triomphe, Daniel. They would have had the final stage of the Tour de Pompeii, the Giro <laughs> di Pompeii, round here. Well, we reckon, I mean, based on some of the cobbled climbs here, very steep, we reckon Peter Van Pessigen would have been right at home, don't we? And with his sort of, well, with his very dark skin, sort of swarthy complexion, we've always wondered whether he didn't have um, southern Mediterranean origin. So who knows? Maybe Roman roots, Van Pettigem. Yeah, the, the big, steep cobbled climb coming into Pompeii, very impressive, really large cobblestones, super pave, really. I'm not sure whether in Italian they call them San Pietrini, is the name for those huge cobbles. I'm not sure if that's what they are. And there's, I think the gravel stage was in that bit there because the surface is a bit gravelly. And we're standing, as you said, I think, Lionel, before what would have been the Arc de Triomphe. So I guess, you know, this would have been the final stage, and where we're standing, just a 20 metres or so behind the line, would have been possibly the mix zone. This is where Marcus Cavendishius um, would have been sharing his either his joy or disappointment at yet another victory or a, or a near miss on the, I don't know what the Champs-Élysées would have been. And Patrick Lefebvreus would have been given the big thumbs up or, or the saying, big thumbs down. Or saying something slightly inappropriate perhaps or, or using or regaling with some kind of bon mot about the Michelin-starred restaurant taverna that he was going to eat in, in Pompeii that evening. Marcus Cavendish you displease me. <laughs> no contract. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science and Sport. Science and Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science and Sport for supporting the Cycling Podcast. 
As everybody knows, you can get 25% off all of Science Sports products at scienceinsport.com with the code SISCP25. But this week, something caught my eye, Daniel, on social media. The CEO of Science and Sport, Stephen Moon, had posted about the Science and Sport Group's new gel machine, which was undergoing final tests in Italy before being shipped to Blackburn, where it will package 246 gels every minute. The current machine Science and Sport has packages 25 gels per minute so that's a 10 times improvement in speed and efficiency i mean this is like going from me cycling up the uh, the climb today to matthew van der poel accelerating up the climb today uh, this will enable science and sport to be more efficient Stephen also posted a video of this machine in action i mean it's an impressive bit of kit look at that Look at that, Daniel. I mean, this is great podcasting gold, isn't it? Talking about a video the listeners can't see. But if you uh, check out Stephen Moon on various social media channels, the CEO of Science and Sport, you may well be able to find the video of the machine in action. The big question as we go to the stage to Blockhouse tomorrow is whether Guillaume Martin or Simon Yates is the leader in the clubhouse. Martin has got a little advantage over Yates, but Yates, despite that crash, the other day and the strapping he had on his knee a couple of days ago he didn't seem to have that strapping this morning he did. did he oh he did have the did. strapping did he i couldn't see the strapping yes, i wasn't looking down at his knee closely enough clearly um but he is still in a very good position he's got through the bulk of the first week with only that minor drama and we heard from simon yates and his team bike exchange jaco teammate lawson craddock at the start in napoli this lunchtime. So, I mean, how's the knee and what exactly happened to it the other day? There's a crash in front of me. I've actually been able to come to a stop, but someone's ploughed me from behind because they don't know how to use the brakes. Any names? I don't know who it was, no. No, they were behind me, so I couldn't see. But I've hit the curb with my knee, unfortunately, so that's where I've done the damage. But it's getting better every day. Uh, it's not 100% yet, but uh, it's not impeding me at the moment. Tomorrow's stage is one of two that you've reconned. Um, what struck you about the blockhouse climb when you did? I actually didn't end up doing it because of uh, just logistical problems after a serious misconnection and all. It was a very messy period, but I've actually been talking to my brother about it because he did it in uh, 2017. I think you all guys, all you guys know, it's a very difficult climb. I'm expecting a very uh, aggressive race. I think it's going to be the first, you know, big explosion of uh, GC action. But as I was just saying to Alistair, I think uh, I'm in a good position. I mean, I, in front of most of the the GC guys, so I don't think I need to be aggressive or I don't need to to attack necessarily. And we'll see what the other teams have in store. Well, it seems to have gone very well for you guys so far. You've sort of been, well, in, in the background a little bit, which is perfect, isn't it, in the first week? No, it's been a really great start for us, you know. I mean, uh, winning a stage with Simon and the time trial was a, a big motivation boost. And, uh, yeah, I think we're overall in just a, a really, really good and uh, comfortable spot. Uh, motivation is still uh, really quite high, and uh, there's still a lot of uh, belief in the team that uh, we can do something special here. So, yeah, I think... Uh, Right now, we're in the middle of a pretty demanding three-day block, and uh, yeah, we'll see how see how the outcome is. There's always a lot of talk about Simon's positioning in the bunch. I don't know how much is truth, how much is myth, but he really does like to. Well, he doesn't like to be right at the front all the time. Um, what would you say to that? I mean, as someone who has to help him kind of make his way through the group. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
Yeah, I, I think for us, you know, we, we, we have our moments that we, we feel like we can relax and our moments that we really put an emphasis on uh, being in good position and, and making sure that we're on the, on the front foot. And, uh, you know, I think that's been a big focus for us uh, in this, this first, first week of the Giro. And, uh, yeah, I mean, overall, you look at uh, the, the results of the, the first week and, and, and the standings now, I think we're really comfortable about uh, where we are and how we're racing as a team. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to, to seeing uh, getting a little mixed up in the, the next couple of days. Well, Lionel, we heard there that Simon Yates had received a bit of a setback in his preparation for this Giro in the sense that he couldn't go to Blockhouse and he'd been asking his brother, Adam, for intel. Given that Adam rides for a rival team, let's hope that he hasn't given him any duff information. I told mean, him that, you know, the last 10 kilometres, which are in actual fact, I think 9.4% average, the last 10 kilometres of the Blockhouse climb, they're not, you know... 2% with some downhill sections and you know you yeah. can really use a you yeah. should, you'd probably be better off with a 57 <laughs> front chain ring. You don't need a small ring Simon, just have a, just go with a big ring tomorrow, yeah it'll be fine Lionel, you've been to Blockhouse haven't you a beautiful place, fond memories of 2017, we were there when the Giro finished up at well not quite a Blockhouse because it finishes at 1600, just, on, just over 1600 metres above sea level you can climb to over 2000 metres and to the actual blockhouse, which is a sort of ancient stone structure up there. Um, Lionel, the, it's, it's in the Mayela National Park in a book that was written in 2010 or 2011, Mountain High. Um, the, the author talks about myths and legends surrounding the Mayela, how devils used to lurk up there. Locals were sure that devils resided on blockhouse. According to one, they would shovel lingering snows and pelt the surrounding villages with what fell as hail until someone down below rang a church bell and the devils would retreat to hell. The demons were thought to be the guardians of buried treasure left by wealthy men whose soul would only rest when their spirit was exercised either by a spell or some gesture of fearlessness. The quantity of buried treasure in the Abruzzo was surprising, although presumably also elusive for those who took to the mountains to find it in secret. Indeed, wow. yeah. Well, I wonder how Wilco Kelderman will be feeling tomorrow, whether he'll be wondering about the motorcycle devils that uh, brought his Giro to a shuddering halt a few years ago. There was that, well, very unfortunate incident, wasn't there, where the motorcycle pulled over to the side of the road, but not really far enough off the road. Kelderman clipped it. Lander, Mikel Lander and Geraint Thomas also went down. And, well, that was more or less the end of their respective jury wasn't it that year uh, but tomorrow's stage is not just a kind of you know flat run and then blockhouse at the end which we have seen in the past there's a couple of really big climbs on the way I mean Rocarasso has had a stage finish a couple of times in the past Ruben Guerrero of EF Education first won there a couple of years ago that's a difficult climb and then the Paso Lanciano as well very difficult before which they is, even start climbing which blockhouse. is half of well it's most of blockhouse it's yeah. like it is to blockhouse what chalet reina is to the mont ventoux lionel how do you think peo bilbao our old chum peo bilbao will fare tomorrow because he's someone who's just been getting stronger and stronger in grand tours he lies ninth on general classification two minutes down and he's the steady eddie of grand tours isn't he um last year finished in the top 10 in both the Giro and the Tour de France, which was a mightily impressive performance, wasn't it? Ninth in the Tour. No, he didn't. He didn't finish in the top ten in the Giro. He finished thirteenth in the Giro. 
That's and not in the top ten. That's Daniel. not in the top ten. Um, <laughs> even being generous, um, but he was ninth. He was ninth in the tour, and well, he's ridden an awful lot of Grand Tours in the last few years because in 2020 he was also one of the very rare riders. Was he the only rider who rode both? the Tour and the Giro in that truncated COVID-affected season. That year, he was 16th in the Tour and 5th in the Giro. He's a rider who's growing in stature and growing in confidence, and I spoke to him this morning in Naples. Arpeo, it looks as though it's been a good first week for you. Um, how would you assess it? Yeah, it's been a good week, no? Nothing to complain about. We need to say also that uh, maybe the Real Giro didn't start, no, tomorrow, today maybe, and especially tomorrow we will start to see more gaps between the overall riders, no, so until now I think not many conclusions that uh, we can do. How important is tomorrow and how much preparation have you done specifically for tomorrow? Have you been on recons? No, I didn't really did any recon, no, I didn't have time to come to Italy for making recons but I know these climbs from racing before so uh, I think it's not gonna be so important for me and it's gonna be a good test though no? because you we've seen that in Edna we arrived with three riders of the team there in the top so we have good vibrations for tomorrow's stage. You lost Jan Tratnik earlier in the Giro how much of a blow was that? Yeah, he was a key rider for the team, no? uh, maybe the most useful from all of us because he's a good rider for every terrain, he can pull so hard in the flat, he's good on TT, he's good on the climbs, he can help also in the train of the sprinters, so he was maybe the, the joker from, from our team and it's a pity that we lost him, but cycling is like this, no? every year uh, we lost the uh, riders in the, during the, the three weeks. This time it's been Jan, and we will try to to not to lose another one. You've got better every year in the last few years. You've done a lot of Grand Tours now in the last few years. Just talk to me a bit about how your confidence has grown as a rider in the last two or three years. Yeah, obviously my confidence uh, has been growing because yeah, just doing two Grand Tours every year and looking at uh, in every Grand Tour I learn something different No, my shape goes uh, up and up and yeah I arrived to this point where I feel really confident in three weeks and especially in the Giro no? that it's uh, I feel it like my my race. Well Daniel I think 13th is to the top 10 what a 2 p.m. cappuccino is to uh, your <laughs> Italian sensibility. While we're talking about corrections this is classifications corrections corner because al s got in touch on twitter to just clarify how the fuga bianchi breakaway prize works because i was wondering whether the drone hopper riders who were caught in the uh, the potato chase behind diego rosa would be scoring any points for the fuga bianchi breakaway prize and of course they wouldn't be i did actually look this up but al s has uh, clarified that the riders must be a leading group or lone rider. That group must be 10 riders or less. And the points only kick in if the break is away for five kilometres or more. This is fantastic. You and I could have covered cycling for 300 years and we would never have looked it up. <laughs> it's basically the soft brake classification, isn't it? Because real brakes that might go, you know, break away and come back and break away and come back 
don't quite qualify. So it really is the kind of the wake up everyone, the Giro's on brake classification. You and I are too busy poncing around at archaeological (laughs) sites and tasting local delicacies. Pompeii and pizza, but we don't know the actual rules. Yes. (laughs) Lionel, pizza. The umpteenth mention of pizza today. And this brings us to our Giro del Buffalo for today. Let's hear from, well, it was me on this occasion and Richard Moore last year in the Abruzzo, in Abruzzo, where we're going tomorrow on a bit of a pilgrimage, on a bit of an adventure. Il Giro del Buffalo, remembering Richard Moore. Here we are, Daniel, on our much-promised uh, pilgrimage in Castel di Sangro, and we're outside the pizzeria. This is very unnerving for me because I'm being guided by you for once. Usually it's the other way around. I'm doing everything you say. Um, I'm like your robot for the day. Well, let me, let me take you on a little tour of Castel di Sangro. Daniel, where 25 years ago, Joe McGuinness, the American author, came to live for a year. This was the subject of our Kilometer Zero, of course, the other day. Now, everything in the town happened here. All the footballers ate here in this pizzeria. It was called Marcella's, and Marcella ran the place. It's now called La Lanterna. Why are we going into a pizzeria at lunchtime? Italians don't eat pizza at lunchtime. Because we're going to ask if they remember the great American and slightly crazy author, Joe McGuinness, being here. Let's go in. Who am I looking for? Marcella. Claudio Bonomi. Well, Daniel, that was astonishing. Marcella is no longer there, but you spoke to the proprietor of the pizzeria now, and about five minutes into the conversation, he dropped a bombshell. Well, indeed, Rich. I asked Claudio Bonomi, the pizzaiolo and owner of the pizzeria La Lanterna, if he had any good anecdotes about Joe McGuinness, and he started telling me a story about the game in Bari, the infamous game in Bari, and um, and I said, oh, well, you must, you obviously went to the games. You went to the away games. You travelled with the team. And he said, what do you mean? I played centre midfield. <laughs> <laughs> and we, established, we then established that Claudio was pretty much Castel di Sangro's um, star player. Yeah, quite a good advert for his pizza now, not being unkind, <laughs> but... Uh, I, I looked him up and he, he was had long kind of flowing hair. What a sight he must have been to, you know, if you were watching him play, this, I mean, it was it's more than a mane. It was <laughs> it was almost down to his feet. Claudio Canigia style, long straggly hair. And he had, I think he signed mid-season from Sampdoria. I need to look this up. And so he was a, he was a big, exciting signing for the team. So absolutely amazing to bump into him. We're going to send pictures of the town to... Nancy Doherty, Joe McGuinness's widow, who we spoke to for the episode Kilometer Zero. But I went on a bit of a pilgrimage around his old apartment, the hotel McGuinness stayed in. And I must say, my impression of Castle de Sangro um, don't quite mirror the impression from reading the book, where you feel like it's more of a one-horse town. There are a lot of shops, uh, a lot of cafes, bars now, a couple of hotels, I noticed. 
and a lot of young people. And we're overlooking it now, aren't we, Rich? Um, let's describe the scene a little bit. Well, there's the hill that's very famous behind the town, the sort of uh, very kind of rounded uh, hillock behind Promontory. the town. And then we're surrounded by, sorry, we're surrounded by the, uh, the Abruzzo Mountains, I guess. Well, Lionel, very fond memories of that day last year when we were in Castel di Sangro. Very fond memories of Richard's Kilometer Zero on Castel di Sangro, the book that talked about the 19, the phenomenal 1996 season of Castel di Sangro. It wasn't 96 season, it came out in 1996, so it was in the mid-90s anyway. This extraordinary story of a very small club that had scaled the Italian divisions came to a very sticky ending, although there fairy tale came to a very sticky ending we heard there from Claudio Bonomi who was the star midfielder and, and we located him we found him last year working as a pizzaiolo or in the pizza restaurant yeah it was a story in which Richard had invested a lot of energy and a lot of excitement and it was I know it was a day last year that he really relished and really enjoyed and the reason for that was because he loved the writing in the book, Joe McGuinness's book, The Miracle of Castel di Sangro, was... I mean, that really tickled Richard, that, the quality of the storytelling. Um, he didn't even mind when he found out that some of the storytelling might have been slightly embellished here and there. Oh, if anything, he liked that as the host <laughs> exactly. of the Cycling Podcast. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Before we go, I must just uh, ask listeners, please do send in some questions for the press conference which we will be holding on Monday. Daniel and I will be, uh, well we haven't even got a press officer to, um, you know, to, to what, route through the questions and, uh, and, and pick out all of the easy ones. So just ask us anything. Please do so by recording a voice memo on your phone and email it to contact at thecyclingpodcast.com The details are in the show notes. Uh, ask about anything regarding the Giro, the cycling podcast, Daniel, or Daniel's book about Jan Ulrich, anything. Don't ask us about the Bible if you want an accurate <laughs> response <laughs> no. or anything religious. Or anything about pizza toppings or the time that one should have a cappuccino, anything controversial like that. We will just, uh, well, well, we'll get up from the, the table. We'll, we'll drop the mic and walk away, won't we? We will, Lionel. Well, that's a good evening from us, isn't it? We're off to we're off to a wine resort tonight. We've got a, good, we've got a nice run of what of wineries that we're staying on the next three days just before Brian gets here. Excellent. So we will be back tomorrow to talk about the stage two blockhouse. Hope everyone joins us then. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Lionel. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Byrne. Selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. 
Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. <laughs> 